This morning I'm going to read the first five verses of Revelation 21 and the first five verses of Revelation 22. Um, we're going to be, well, let me back up. Before I do that, I want to remind you of a bigger picture of what we're doing this year. So we're not going to review the four uh, preliminary principles today. We're going to go bigger than that. I want to remind you that the Bible is a four-part story. You remember those four parts? Can you say them with me? Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. The Bible is not a two-part story in which we just focus on rebellion and redemption. And yeah, we kind of think about creation, but only for arguing with people. And restoration is where we think about Revelation as really our escape and that we're really scared of that book so we don't give much attention to it. The Bible is a four-part story. They're all four parts, equally important. They are profoundly important to understanding God's Word. And as we have been going through Revelation together, one of the primary reasons we've done that is so that we would understand restoration more deeply. And so two weeks ago, we started in chapter 21 and 22, and we're going to stay in that through the end of June. So we're going to be looking at these chapters from now until the end of the month. So this will be week two, all right? So I'm going to read the same things we did last time. Last time I picked out some verses of these that I'm going to read to you. And today I'm going to do the same thing. And don't worry, we're going to cover everything in these chapters. I'm just trying to get at it get at what they're saying in a piecemeal manner so that collectively at the end of the month, I really hope that you understand restoration in a much more profound way. Make sense? So listen to this, Revelation 21 and 22, the first five verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Is that still encouraging to you? It is to me. If you want to, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. This, 
This stuff that you recorded for us at the end of your book is just spectacular. Thank you. We would never have imagined this kind of stuff. This comes from your heart and your mind, and it is stunning. So as we continue to think about it, Lord, we ask that you would, through your grace, just assault all that we are. Our minds, our, our hearts, our wills, our emotions, just full on assault us with truth that we might see ourselves for who we really are, that we might understand who you really are, and that the good news that you have for us in Jesus might be more important to us. And these realities that you talk about would change us. So have your way with us, Lord. Whatever you want to do, do it. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Before we jump in this morning, we need to remember our backdrop. We did this two weeks ago. We're going to do it another time after this. We need to do the hard work of thinking about what most of us have been taught or what most of us have read is going to happen at the end of the world. And we need to be honest about this and we need to be truthful about this because it really matters. And for those of you that are younger and haven't heard a single thing about what I'm going to talk about, it's important for you too because you're going to have a better handle on what has shaped, largely shaped, the American church. And you really need to understand this, because otherwise you will have no clue why some people think the way they do about this book of Revelation. So let's jump in and remember what most of us have heard or read or been taught about the end of time. Here goes, in brief, summary, non-technical manner. The world is going to get worse and worse, and before things get too bad, those that follow Jesus are going to be sucked out of earth, and they are just going somewhere up there. People are literally going to vanish, and in their body, they're going to vanish and just get sucked up and be somewhere up there. That's known as what people have called the rapture. And when that happens, Jesus is going to come back and he is going to justice bomb the earth so that things are going to be, things are going to explode and all kinds of mess is going to happen. And then eventually, um, all kinds of really strange things are going to happen after that. And then eventually, there's all kinds of debate that is, we won't get into. That's the framework of what people have typically heard or been, or been taught or thought or read. Now, from that framework is where all the debate begins to happen. So people begin to debate about, well, does the rapture happen before the tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation? Um, when does the tribulation start? People debate about that. What's the mark of the beast? People debate about that. Um, one other item is profoundly significant to this framework. It's this that we should pay a lot of attention to what is happening with Israel, the nation of Israel. Because God has a special plan for the nation of Israel and has a different plan for the church. Now the effect of all of this system and framework 
is that people that have heard that, bought into that, think that way, have a tendency to focus on what is bad, the bad things that are happening in the world. They have a tendency to think a lot about scary things that are going on and some of those debates that are going on. And the truth is, this has become big business in our country. And all that framework that I mentioned to you has only been around roughly 100 years. Hasn't been around very long. But it has dominated our country and dominated the church in our country. That's our backdrop that we got to acknowledge because that's not what the Scripture actually teaches at all. So this morning, we're going to jump into these chapters again. And the second thing I want to do is remind you of where we were two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, and starting to look at chapters 21 and 22, we looked at the essence of what is to come, the essence of our forever. Maybe you remember this. The essence of what is described in 21 and 22, the essence of our forever is this. Heaven is coming down. Earth and heaven will be reunited again. That's what Ephesians 1 says and other places throughout the scriptures. Heaven is coming down and everything is going to be restored. That's the essence of our forever future. The other aspect of it is that God always finishes what he starts. That the way he set up the world in Genesis 1 and 2 will be how the world is. You will live the way you were built to live. And God will finally prove to us in an absolutely literal way that we are meant to be with him without anything in between. Just us living with God forever and growing. And that means what we looked at, that God always finishes what he starts, that his presence will be with us. Remember we looked at that from the text, it says that. It means the promise of the scripture that we looked at has been literally fulfilled, finally and literally, consummation-wise, consummatory, fulfilled. And it means that we'll see his face. Do you remember talking about that? That's the essence of what's to come. Heaven coming down. God finishes what he starts, which means his presence, his promises, and we'll see him face to face. So this morning, we're going to dive back into these same chapters, and we're going to look at something else that we didn't look at last time, and that's this. Did you notice verse 5 of chapter 21? God says, behold, I'm making all things new. So this morning, we're going to try to figure this out. What does it mean that God says we're going to make all, that he's going to make all things new? And the second thing we're going to look at today is hope. Because it's about time we start talking a little bit more about hope. A little bit more practically about hope. All right, so here's where we're going. What does it mean when God says he's going to make all things new? And hope. Follow? Tracking? Ready? Let's jump in. What does it mean when God says he's going to make all things new? And let's start here. Do you realize, will you realize how obsessed we are with what is new? Will you, will you really think about that? Really? I know immediately some of you may think, oh, I don't like new things. I want to go back to the way things used to be. No, you don't. So there, there's, a, there's a very small part of your life where you may think that. And it's true. But the vast majority of who you are, you want new. Let's try to work that out. We can't stand decay. 
We can't stand something that's declining. Think about what we have invented to keep things from happening, to keep things from declining. Refrigerator, anybody like their food going bad? Wouldn't you like to have food that never went bad? Come on, be honest. Freezer, everybody have a refrigerator and freezer here? Hmm, how about two? How about three? Yeah, we don't like things to decay and go downhill. Formaldehyde, you want to keep things so you can study things? Want to preserve things? Yeah. How about makeup? Does it bother you when we begin to decline? So we start using products to help cover some of those things up, right? I'm not slamming. All of us face this, okay? We don't like it, right? There are all kinds of examples of this. We don't like it when things decline or decay. Let's be honest. Let's get a little more personal. When you're in conversations with people and they bring up something new that you hadn't heard about before, aren't you interested? It can be technology. It can be something at your work. It can be a new idea. It can be a new book. It can be a new show. It can be a new movie. You're interested and don't want to miss out. FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. You don't want to miss out on anything. So something that's new, you want to make sure you know about, even if at the end of the day you have to come to the sobering reality of, I'm not sure how to work that, and they need somebody to help me know how to work that, right? We love new ideas. We love new books. We love new things. We are obsessed with what is new. And do you know why that is? What's underneath that desire for new is this. God has made us to crave what is eternal. And because of sin, the best we got right now is, I just want something new because it might make this thing last a little bit more. (laughs) Might make me last a little bit more. We are wired for what is eternal. And that's why we have this obsession with something that is new. That's why we want to do everything we can to keep things from decaying and dying. Because we want what lasts. Don't you? I do. And I'll be upset about that for you if you want. We want what is eternal. And no one can escape that. No one. And if you're willing to go there and think about that, those things that we've just been talking about, that sets you up perfectly for trying to understand verse 5. God says, behold, I'm making all things new. Well, Dave, what does that mean? Well, let's jump in with that backdrop. There are two words in the original language to describe new. One of them, one word, says new and means this. It didn't previously exist. And beloved, that ain't this word. There's another word for new. And it's the only word that God uses here in Revelation to describe what's new. New heavens, new earth, making all things new. It's this, something that has an old origin but has been transformed. Something that has an older origin, but is qualitatively new. You get that? You get the difference? There's one new that says this didn't exist before. 
That's not what God's talking about. God is talking about something that has previously existed that he is going to transform and make qualitatively new. That's what he's talking about. Jenny, my wife, her brother, my brother-in-law, um, a number of years ago, he, he had a Toyota 4Runner. And he had had this 4Runner for about 20 years. And he loved this 4Runner. I actually think it was his first car or first vehicle, but he may correct me and say I'm wrong. But I think that's right. And it's the first one he bought with his own money, da, 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 da. Well, 20 years later, that thing was pretty well rusted out, you know? I mean, he took pretty good care of it, put a nice top on it. But it was like things were falling apart. The buttons weren't working on the inside. Numbers were, you know, the, you know what happens if you keep a car 20 years. And he didn't want to let it go. And it was costing him more to keep that thing on the road than if he were to just get a brand new vehicle. So you know what he did? He found a place in Texas, a special place. What they do is they take forerunners. And what they do with forerunners is they strip them all the way down, all the way down to the studs, if you will. And they repaint everything and they put new parts in. They put uh, uh, newer technology in. They put it all back together so that you get your original 20-year-old forerunner and it is qualitatively new. That's what God is talking about. God is not going to destroy the earth and then create a brand new one out of nothing. God is in the business of qualitatively transforming, making new this world, the earth, even now. And ultimately, he will make it all new. It will qualitatively be new so that it will be bright and it will be fresh and it will be exactly what he wanted it to be from the beginning. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? That's what he means with all things new. Now let's meditate on this some more and make this a little bit more personal. Those of you that know your scriptures a little bit more might have already picked up on this idea. And those of you that know the scriptures, check out. Don't worry about this. This is for those of you that have read a little bit more. Where does the new covenant come from? The old covenant. Is it altogether new? No, it is not. It is qualitatively better. It's not different. It's not as if it didn't exist before. You ever heard of the new commandment? What do you think that's based on? The old commandment. Do you know what conversion means? The old man becomes what? New. And for those of you that have experienced that, are you the same person? In a way, yes. And in a way, no way, right? But you're still the same height, same weight, everything else, right? Still got the same brain function. You see, all this God has been teaching us all along in the Scriptures. We just get the culmination of it right here. We get the culmination of the fact that everything will be made new. It will be transformed and qualitatively new. That means that we cannot fail to connect all of this with the gospel. This will make no sense and has no power outside of what Jesus has done in connecting what we have just talked about with, excuse me, what Jesus has actually done. 
You see, what Jesus has done through his life, perfect life on your behalf, what Jesus has done through his death, absorbing the, the wrath and judgment of God for you, and being raised from the dead in, in bodily form, what all that means is that this is going to happen. Not because of your efforts, not because of your merits, not because of your demerits, but because of what Jesus has done. If we fail to connect the gospel here, we'll miss it. Beloved, the gospel, what Jesus has done, he didn't live and die and rise again to make you a good person. He lived and died and rose again to make you a new person. Do you know what a good person is? A good person is this. I have a certain way of doing things and I am unflinching. I put an enormously high value on control. I put an enormously high value on uh, approval. I put an enormously high value on achievement. Let's make it even more practical. When we gather for worship, a good person will go through the motions of reading the confession of faith. A new person reads the confession of faith or confession of sin and thinks, ooh, I got to own that. Ooh, that's talking about my life. Do you see the difference? A good person wants to maintain appearance and control. A good person may know a lot of Christian-type language, but it has no connection to the heart. A new person a new person is willing to admit that they fall short of the glory of God. A new person will admit, I haven't loved God in these ways. A new person will say, yes, I have not loved my neighbor in these ways. A new person will actually be suspicious of self because a new person is learning what it means to be honest about who they actually are and not trying to keep appearances. A new person is someone who is willing to do honest and sincere self-examination. A good person is looking to pass the test. A new person knows that their only hope is outside of themselves. Jesus has done everything to make us new, not make us good, so that we belong to him and we want to live for him because we've been made new. One other thing before we get to some quotes. In thinking about what does it mean that God made all things new, don't forget to make the gospel connection and, to, and own that and think about that and take that in. But notice where this comes from. What does verse 5 tell you? God was speaking, right? So it comes from God. And where was he located? On the throne. God is the one that makes all things new. Yes, he is the one that made you new. You didn't choose to make yourself new. God made you new. You didn't choose to rework things in the Bible. God made the new covenant. God made the new commandment. And God's going to make the new world. This is talking about supernatural activity and supernatural power. And if Jesus has made you new, then guess what? You get to participate in all of this. It means that what you're doing Monday through Saturday actually means something. 
It means that your hope is not to get out of here or to wonder whether or not you're going to vanish. It's that what you do every day is participating in what God is doing. I'll try to make it more clear. Beloved, God has made us to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality so that as we are living ordinary lives, God supernaturally does things that we could never do. It means that God takes our ordinariness and sometimes he works against it. Sometimes he works above it. Sometimes he works with it, but he's the one that makes the change. Will you let that sink in? So if you're a doer and you're wondering, what in the world am I supposed to, am I supposed to do? Be ordinary. Stop trying to get God's attention by doing these five things. Stop hoping that if you just do the right thing that he'll smile at you more. Live from his approval. Live from his smile because of what Jesus has done. Be yourself in Christ. Because that is what God has been using. And that is what he's been doing. Using people, broken people like me and you to bring about amazing transformation. And sometimes, I'll say it again, that includes him working against us. Because <laughs> we don't always get it right. And he isn't bound by us getting it wrong. It's the most freeing thing you can imagine. And I hope you'll take that in and think about it. So let me give you some quotes. I don't normally do this in this way. And I'm not gonna tell you who wrote them and there are always reasons for that. Because I want you to learn how to discern what is true and what isn't. I don't care if you know who I read. And I read some author and you like the name and think, ooh, well, i got to go read that. If you want to know who it is, you can come up and talk to me. But I want you to grow in your discernment. I want you to hear whatever is said from this pulpit and measure it against the Word of God so that you're growing in your discernment of what is true. So when the Spirit bears witness with your spirit, something that's said, it doesn't matter who says it. Because God did. Make sense? Let me give you some quotes to meditate on and think about. I won't get these literally exactly correct, but I'll be close. And I know you've heard some of these before, four of them. Maybe this will get the juices flowing in your own life. All of history is but the cover in the title page. And this, Revelation 21 and 22, is but chapter 1 of the greatest story ever told in which the next chapter is greater than the one before. Will you let that sink in? Here's another one. This comes from, I'll tell you this is, Augustine. This comes from Augustine who, as you know, was in North Africa, lived around the year 400. And as he was watching and looking over the Mediterranean Sea and the setting of the sun said, as the sun was setting, <laughs> if God gives these kinds of gifts to people like me, what does he have in store for those who will be with him forever? Anybody ever enjoy the sunset? What's to come? 
What's to come when everything's made new? Another one. For those who are outside of Christ, this world is the closest to heaven that you will ever be. And those of you that are in Christ, this world is the closest to hell that you will ever be. And I hope you hear that for what it is. It's an offer. It's a reality check. And finally, all will be amen and hallelujah. We will rest and we will see. We will see and we will know. We will know and we will love. We will love and we will praise. Behold our end, which is no end. I hope that gives you a glimpse of what God means when he says all things will be made new. Let's talk about hope briefly. Remember who God was communicating with through John. Remember the original audience. Remember that those who originally received this from the Apostle John, ultimately from God, were going through persecution. Do you remember this? And that persecution would ebb and it would flow. It would get super intense and it would back off a little bit. And the persecution would get so intense that there would be some people, we have record of this, who would face the following. A hole drilled into their head and molten lead poured into that hole. How's that sound like? How does that sound for a Saturday afternoon? Persecution was real and it got super intense. And this was what God gave his people so that they could endure anything. And let me tell you, it worked. It worked. And let's dive into that just a little bit. You've heard some of this already. Let's review. How many of us, in talking about the coming persecution, and maybe in talking about it, we're already facing it, and already knew people that had loved ones that died and were persecuted, how many of us will be tempted to think, if we can just overthrow the Roman Empire, all this will be better? And shift our focus away from God and start focusing our attention on the empire. Or on the other side, we hear the persecution is coming, we're facing it, we're enduring it, loved ones are dying, and we begin to think, if we can just fix the government, that's the real solution to our comfort. Aren't those two temptations for us? Beloved, God's people in the first century didn't give in to those, even though those temptations are real. You know what they did? They cared for the poor. You know what else they did? They cared for people that nobody else wanted to care about. They planted churches. They gave generously. They cared for one another. And they gathered for worship. They prayed and they lived their life out of who Jesus was for them. They were focused on God. That means that they were willing to endure persecution. Have you read some of those stories? I know you have. 
And we know that this worked because by the year 350, the Roman Empire was 60 million people and 34 million of those were followers of Christ. God has always given his people what they need to face the future no matter what it is or how difficult it is because he always wants us to focus on him and the throne, exclusively obsessing over him and his gospel and his glory and his sovereignty. And everything else is down here. We so remember this audience. Remember the original audience. Don't forget them because our time may be coming. We are, all, we are always, excuse me, also don't forget, we are creatures of hope. God made us to be creatures of hope. Every one of you has hope in something. Let me illustrate. Not my illustration, tweaked it a little bit, borrowed from someone else. You might remember it. Two people, this is to illustrate that we all live in some semblance, all, we all live by hope. Two people have the exact same job. It is a boring job. The most boring job that you can imagine. This job lasts for one year. One, the one who is employed will make $40,000 at the end of that year. The other one, We'll get paid $5 million at the end of that year. Did I say it was a boring job? It is a boring job. The most boring job you can imagine. As the weeks begin to roll on with these two doing the exact same job, guess what the one begins to think who's making $40,000 a year? This is awful. The people I work with smell. I mean, this is, this is the most boring job I've ever had, and it's only for $40,000? I should be getting paid a lot more for this. It required me to work 50 hours a week and I'm getting paid $40,000. What is this? And the person who gets $5 million? Can't wait to go to work today. Can you believe that I get to do this boring job and in one year, I'm gonna get $5 million? What our hope is for the future always, always, always affects our present. It is inescapable. What you put your hope in and what you hope for dramatically, profoundly influences your now. And I want you to understand that the fact that God is going to make all things new and the fact that that's connected to Jesus and what he has done for you becomes your hope for your everyday life. And that means three things will be worked into you. Many more, but we're going to limit it to three this morning. Three things are going to be worked into your life. So if you want to know, how in the world do I know if God's doing stuff in my life? How do I know that hope is increasing in my life? How do I know that the reality that the new heavens and the new earth and God making all things new is making a difference in my life? I'll tell you three things. The first is this. Sacrifice will become a normal part of your life. We, and we live in a world that is not that interested in sacrifice. 
unless it makes me look good. But to know that all things are going to be made new means that you're going to be willing to think that sacrifice is actually normal. And that you are willing to sacrifice. You're willing to be inconvenienced. You're willing to recognize that your life isn't just about your comfort and what you want. And what's related to that first one is this. It's very close to it. We will be able to endure trials that are beyond our imagination. It's not just that we'll, be, that, that we'll think sacrifice is normal. It's that we'll be able to endure trials that are beyond our imagination. Can we just do some real talk for a minute? Real talk. Turn the clock back as far as you need to to do this real talk. How many of you went to high school and had a decent experience and thought to yourself, even if it was a bad experience, when I get out of high school, man, everything is going to be better. I'm going to go away to school maybe, and I got a brand new beginning to start there. So you get to high school and you go into college and you think, man, this is going to be a new start. I'm going to get to do things that I want to do. And then you realize, hmm, I got more freedom than I've ever had. And man, I keep making some dumb decisions. And all that freedom I had and all those decisions I made, not quite as happy as I thought I'd be. And now I got to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And that is terrifying. I don't know what to do with that. But somehow you make your way through college or your first job if you didn't go to college and you, and you get out and you try to figure out what to do and you take that first job and it isn't what you thought it was going to be. But you're learning. So along the way you're kind of realizing a little bit more about the way the world works and you're realizing that things are not quite as easy as you thought they were going to be and that things are going to be a little bit more challenging and then you kind of find your way a little bit. You start having some success in the workforce. That house that you wanted to get, you're actually able to buy. That promotion that you wanted, you finally got it after being rejected or passed over for a while. But that house has got problems. It's not quite what you thought it was going to be. And that promotion and that that pay increase, man, it just seems to be gone every month. It's just gone. And if you're the kind that God was leading you to be married, and you thought to yourself, well, I'm, I'm actually going to get married. I'm, I'm going to get married, and this, this is going to fix my lust problem, and this is going to fix my loneliness, and this is really going to give me some purpose in life. How's that going? It fix your lust problems. You, you marry the right one, right? Which means you never, ever look at anyone else anymore and think, wow. How's it going? Those kids that you always wanted, the ones that you thought would really bring you real joy and purpose and satisfaction, how's that going? Oh, I know you love them. I know you die for them. They stretching you in ways you hadn't thought about. They pulling things out of you that you didn't even realize existed? You realize that lust that you had is a whole lot deeper than you thought it was? 
That loneliness that you thought would be satisfied with your spouse? Oh, you, now, you're never lonely now, huh? You always feel heard. You always feel listened to. You always feel like your spouse really connects with you emotionally. Right? Sarcasm. How's it going? Oh, and then if a catastrophe happens, something that you're not expecting at all, either with your children or with your spouse or with your family members, with your job, and catastrophe comes in, oh my goodness, what, what are you going to do then? What did you do? What are you doing? The only thing that will enable you to endure the trials that you can't even imagine is this hope. It's that God is going to make all things new. All things new. A follower of Jesus that lived a long time before us said something to this effect. I consider these present trials is not able to be compared with the glory that will be worked in me, in us. I consider, I reckon, as I weigh them out, the trials that I'm going through now don't compare to the glory that's going to be worked within me. Beloved, you can say that, I can say that, we can say that too. And we can grieve, and we can be frustrated, and we can even be angry all along the way. But with this hope, with this hope, we can endure the trials that we can't even imagine. And the third thing that will be worked into us is this. Enjoyment. Like you can actually enjoy life. You can. Because God is making all things new, you, you can enjoy life. You can enjoy things in this world. You can enjoy your career. You can enjoy something of the fruits of something that you accomplish. You can enjoy the resources that God provides. You can enjoy vacations. You can enjoy exploring the world. You can enjoy friendship. You can enjoy the whatever material things that God determines to bless you with. You can enjoy it. You don't have to live with mild disgust or embarrassment or intimidation. You can actually enjoy life. And you don't have to be jealous of other people and always judging other people and instinctively sarcastic or cynical about others. You can actually enjoy life. And you got to have all these three together though, right? All three of these is what God's working into us. But you can actually enjoy life. We should be a people that go through trials and are frustrated, and that's absolutely true. And we can be a people that have joy. All because this is what God is doing. He's making all things new.